Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Episode 10 of Popcorn Junkie, the weekly movie review and discussion podcast. On this week's episode, I review the Wall Street-based thriller Money Monster, the punk rock-inspired horror movie Green Room, and the latest from Blumhouse Productions' The Darkness. Let's get started. We're human beings. We're not computers. We have a conscience. I'm trying to save him. You're trying to shoot him. I want an explanation! Follow the money, find the fraud. We're in this together now. Don't turn your back on anybody. I don't want you to die. Oh my god. No! You came here to get some answers. You deserve to get some answers. I kind of want to start off this review by just saying that I'm pretty liberal as they come. I am in favor of social progress and a progressive tax code caring for the least among us first and then allowing for businesses to be successful. I mean, it's I don't really fit into one specific category. However, as left-leaning as I am for the most part, sitting through this movie was a chore. Because here's the thing. This movie is about a working-class guy from Queens holding a Jim Cramer-inspired Wall Street stock tipper, entertainer-style guy, and then the two of them uncovering criminal activity by the CEO of this company that led the Queens guy to become bankrupt. And it's not terrible. It's a very well-made movie, and it's well-acted by people like George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Jack O'Connell, Dominic West shows up. It's not a terrible movie. It's just terribly thought out. Because here's the thing. This would have been a great movie to have come out in 2010 to 2012, well within the whole fall of the stock market. And... We're still pretty much in a recession for the working class. The Wall Street investors are doing just fine right now. They're doing great. But seeing this movie, all you really need to know about it is from the trailers. Because by the second trailer they released, I pretty much learned everything that happens in the movie. And that's just a problem with the marketing of the movie. That's not a problem with the movie itself. But the movie itself isn't all that interesting by the movie's end. Because, yes, it's making a mockery of guys like Jim Cramer and Mad Money and the whole idea of people getting their stock tips from the television and and these really crazy and out-there guys instead of talking to people who are actually involved in investing. But then all of a sudden, this guy goes from this entertainer into a hardcore investigative journalist to try and uncover all the hidden illegal activity that the CEO does that ended up losing this guy all his money. And uh, it's it's so pandering to people who are who are essentially guys like George Clooney and Julia Roberts and the director, Jodie Foster, because they're all that Hollywood liberal whine about the problems but never actually do anything because 
That's the thing. This movie doesn't do anything. Yes, it comments on the corruptness inherent in the system, but so did other much better movies. Movies like Wall Street, Margin Call, Wolf of Wall Street, all these really well-made and interesting movies did a much better job of telling the exact same thing. I mean, movies have been doing this since the 20s. There, I mean, when you see Wall Street and businesses in film, more often than not, it's about corruption because Wall Street especially is riddled with corruption. And they get away with it because they've bribed the politicians to allow Wall Street to regulate itself. And no system should be able to regulate itself because that's how you build corruption. Even when you have people outside the system regulating it, there's still corruption. There will always be corruption because humans are corruptible. And putting robots in there isn't better either because robots can be hacked. People will game the system if there's anything to be gained from it. And there's a lot to be gained from Wall Street and investing and money being made faster and faster and faster. And Money Monster doesn't give us anything to, you know, solve the problem. No, pushing for Congress to put a tighter leash on these high-speed investors, or holding media outlets more responsible to report on corruption, or having the public at large be more accountable to the people up top, you know, make your voice heard. There's, there's no outcome for all of this. It's just, hey, corruption's bad, right? God, corruption's terrible. You know who's corrupt is Wall Street. Wall Street's really corrupt. And you know what? Those guys on TV don't make it. And it's like that bit from 60 Minutes where Andy Rooney basically does the, you know what really grinds my gears? And it's that about Wall Street for an hour and like 40 minutes. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's so frustrating that this movie, which basically caters to my sensibilities. It caters to the fact that, yes, Wall Street is corrupt. Yes, we should probably do something about it. But that it doesn't say anything else. Because it might be something if they were allowed to say something. But no, it's just Wall Street's corrupt. You can't do anything about it, really. I mean, the guy investigates the company, but that means holding journalists accountable for actual investigations, which don't which don't give media outlets any actual money. And the way they go about it is so ham-fisted and cliched, like they have a producer actually running around New York City getting evidence out of government outlets that would literally take days, if not weeks, to process. So this movie is... It's trying to be this hostage-based thriller, kind of like maybe Dog Day Afternoon or various other sort of political thrillers. But it doesn't add anything. I mean, like, yeah, George Clooney is charming and Julia Roberts does things. And yes, Wall Street is corrupt. I mean, Jack O'Connell is, is good as his truck driver from Queens driven to the edge. But there's, there's nothing. It's, it's nothing that I haven't seen before. And I feel like even though that I even though I've seen a lot of movies, I feel like other people who haven't seen as much have probably seen this movie before and done better. So 
Why bother? Why? Why? Why don't you say something else? This is the year where Bernie Sanders is pushing ahead in the polls against an establishment politician like Hillary Clinton, who has ties to Wall Street. But they never comment on that aspect of it. That it's, it's, it's just not interesting, and it's. Even as a thriller, even with its inherent angle of, ooh, what's going to happen next, you can probably pretty much figure out what's going to happen. And then the movie just leaves you unsatisfied. So yeah, nothing good came out of it. Thanks a lot. You did nothing but complain about how corrupt Wall Street is. Good for you. You want a cookie? Because that's the thing. If I was going to tell this story... I would try to make it about a guy driven to investigate what's going on on Wall Street and actually doing something about it. Even if it's a Mr. Smith level of impossibility ahead of him, at least have him try. Have him go to the mat trying to do something. Instead, it's a lot of backpatting and real... Yeah, you tell him, Jodie Foster and George Clooney, even though you're not actually telling them anything. You're not telling people what they don't already know. It's been eight years since the collapse, and even before then we understood Wall Street was corrupt. So yeah, thanks for telling us something we already know. Next time Jodie Foster and George Clooney present people finding out water is wet. Ugh. Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. While Money Monster was the big release, there were a couple of smaller releases. In fact, I think Green Room actually came out a few weeks prior, but I just never got around to seeing it. The basic premise is a really, really, really indie punk rock band is trying to make ends meet by going really old school. They don't have social media. They don't release things digitally. It's all recorded on vinyl, which costs a lot of money, which means they have to go traveling around doing gigs. It's very old. They're going about it very old-fashioned, which is stupid because any basic indie punk rock band can do it, and they're just too stubborn to actually... That's not important. The real impetus is they go out to Seattle area and do it and give this interview for a sort of NPR really low budget radio that this guy works for. And in doing so, end up with a gig that lands them in like this really out in the middle of nowhere venue in, in Oregon that is owned and operated by neo-Nazis. Led by none other than Professor X himself, Patrick Stewart. And this band witnesses something that they weren't supposed to and get held hostage by these neo-Nazis. And it's about them trying to escape. And the green room is where they're holed up. And it's Anton Yelchin, who is best known for playing the new Chekhov on the, in the Star Trek movies. But he's been around a lot. He was in Alpha Dog. He was in Terminator Salvation. He's played a voice in the Smurfs movies. He's done all kinds of indie movies like Charlie Bartlett and Fierce People. So, I mean, he's been around. I kind of know him best, aside from Star Trek, as the lead in the Fright Night reboot, which I really dug as a remake. It was... I mean, it wasn't... At, I mean, it took kind of took out the cheesiness 
that the original Fright Night had, but it was a, still a fun horror movie to watch. It was, you know, exciting, even if even though it wasn't really scary. So it's got that going for it. But yeah, Anton Yelchin is the lead, is one of the members, is kind of like, I think, the bassist of the band. The only other actor I recognized that was in the band was Alias Shawcat, who plays maybe on Arrested Development. One of the guys was in the series called Skins, uh, A Long Way Down, Secret in Their Eyes. He's an English actor. And the other one was another English actor in something called Queen and Country and a TV series called Glue. So these are British actors that I'd never heard, that I'd really never heard of. But, But they pulled off the American accent well enough that I couldn't recognize that they were British. And who knows, they may, this may be kind of like a leg up for them to be recognized by people and show up in something bigger. Who knows? The only other actor besides Patrick Stewart that was, that has a name is Imogen Poots, which despite her name has been in a lot of things. 28 Weeks Later, uh, the Jimi Hendrix biopic All Is By My Side that had Andre 3000, the Need for Speed movie, me and Orson Welles. That awkward moment. Also, the love interest in the Fright Night movie. So this is kind of a reunion for her and Anton Yelchin. And it's really good. I dug the hell out of this movie. And it's really kind of... they. Someone described it as a slaughterhouse movie, which is the genre of horror where people are held hostage and, you know, very Saw-like. Things like House of a Thousand Corpses, where the it's kind of a bottle film where it takes place in one venue and then it's about the killers killing off the people one by one but it's not like a wide area that you get with movies like with other slashers like of the Halloween series Nightmare on Elm Street Texas Chainsaw all that it's very tight it, the setting is very controlled and i really dug this i the only thing i would say is Imogen Poots kind of does this Daria voice for the whole thing and her character isn't all that well-developed. But the rest of the actors who play the band get to go through all kinds of emotions, and you get to see Patrick Stewart just be this kind of crazy, in-the-background head of these neo-Nazis, and it's on all the guys who they got to play neo-Nazis for imposing, and, you know, either they're scrawny like the boys from Mad Max, or these these big-looking metal dude, heavy metal kind of guys that remind me of people like Brian Pussain, where they're these big, stocky, burly guys. So either they're crazy little little guys or they're big, imposing, sort of lumberjack-looking dudes. And they're really... It's it's a whole lot of... Not just fright, but the gore is excellent. Some of the best. This is from uh, the studio that released Ex Machina, A24. And whoever they do to do their effects between Ex Machina and this movie... I gotta give them props because their effects work is fantastic. And the only thing I don't think I've liked from this studio is... Let's see. Haven't seen Spring Breakers or The Bling Ring. Those were their first couple. Under the Skin was something... Was that one alien thing with uh, Scarlett Johansson I haven't seen? Ugh, Tusk. But it seems like... They're very much like Blumhouse in that they will provide filmmakers the means to make their movie, and then whatever comes out of it comes out of it. Let's 
because that's how we got Ex Machina, uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary, that one movie with Jesse Eisenberg and Jason Segel about a guy interviewing a well-renowned poet just before the guy kills himself. A24 is the, mo- is the studio that released Room with that one Alison Brie, her Oscar last year. And then looking at it, they did The Witch, which I kind of dug overall. I like the sort of, you know, I definitely, you know, I, I didn't love it, but I really dug what they were trying to do. They're doing this thing with Daniel Radcliffe where he's a corpse and the guy uses him to do all these sorts of crazy cartoonish things. And it looks kind of, it looks like nothing I've ever seen before. It's called Swiss Army Man. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Oh, God. I mean, looking at everything they've got coming up, they started with five movies in 2013, moved up to 12 movies in 2014, had to cut back to 10 in 2015, and so far for their 2016 lineup, they've got 20 movies lined up, only a few of which have even been released so far or have a release date set. And they're working a lot with indie directors and looks like a lot of foreign directors, maybe. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on A24 to see what else they do. Because hopefully they're a better version of Blumhouse. Because Blumhouse kind of found its niche in really cheaply, poorly made, jump scare ridden horror movies. Which is why I tend not to hold them in high regard. The best thing I've seen out of them was Sinister, whose writer and director have gone on to make the Doctor Strange movie for Marvel, and everything else, the Insidious series, uh, Annabelle, all the one-off, stupid found footage stuff they've done. In fact, we'll talk about Blumhouse in a bit with the darkness, but yeah, everything they've done lately, I haven't been a fan of. So hopefully A24 will be a better version of Blumhouse as a neat little independent film produ- you know, film production house. But yeah, Green Room is really solid. If you have the stomach for realistic-looking gore and you know, harsh language and you know intense violence, then you'll probably enjoy Green Room immensely, especially if you're into like punk rock and that sort of alternative mindset because that's definitely where the movie comes from and even though the band members aren't all that likable to begin with because they're if you don't have the stomach for really hipstery sort of alternative people they're not gonna you know win you over but at the same time it's really you know the actors really get to really get a wide range of emotions as they go through what happens in this movie so i definitely recommend it if you get the chance to see it Sweetie, don't put your hands in this, honey. You're leaving my... One, we're all gonna pay. Two, for what we've done. Three, four, five. Last one for the week from Blumhouse Tilt because somebody was playing the Blumhouse pinball game and got a tilt and Blumhouse apparently 
needed a subsidiary for certain horror movies, I guess. I'm not sure. Anyway, from Blumhouse, The Darkness. Nothing to do with, I believe in a thing called love, sadly. Or the video game series of the same name, which I never played. So I don't know if that one's any better. But what we've got is Kevin Bacon and Rada Mitchell. And Rada Mitchell's been in a whole bunch of stuff. She was in the Silent Hill movie in 2004. So she's been around. You'd probably recognize her if you've seen her in something like Phone Booth, Finding Neverland, Man on Fire. She was in the Crazies remake. She's So she's been around. And they are a sort of couple that's a married couple that's on the edge of collapsing because the husband is a philanderer and the wife is an alcoholic. And after a trip to Colorado where you get like a couple scenes with Matt Walsh, whose character and family never come into the picture again, you get this kid who is eventually revealed to be autistic, but they just describe him as weird for the first half of the movie, finds the stones that contain, that helped contain the spirits of an ancient Native American tribe called the Anasazi. I don't know a lot about the Anasazi. I do remember they were part of the, they were mentioned in the Revenant. I believe it's either the tribe that's chasing him or it's a tribe mentioned by Leonardo DiCaprio, but... He, this is taking place in like the in the way out west and I don't know that's not I don't know anymore uh, basic but basically the kid brings back these stones and then he starts getting really weird and bad things start happening supernatural things that they don't want to you know they try to explain off with the family drama stuff and it's poltergeist if you've seen Poltergeist, either the original or the remake, you've seen this movie. The dysfunctional family, the kid, the youngest kid who has a connection to the supernatural, bad things start happening, scary things start happening, people get hurt, and eventually spiritual, uh, some sort of spiritual guide is called in at the end to save everyone. And it's pretty much, note for note, Poltergeist only done not as well. Because, I mean... Kevin Bacon is fine, Rada Mitchell's okay, but, like, if they wanted to write autism, they should have talked to somebody who actually knows a thing about autism. Because, as somebody who is on the spectrum, I have grown up completely, un you know, with a, with a pretty solid understanding of the autism spectrum and the theorized causes of it. And definitely what doesn't cause it, and the fact that there is no cure because it's a disorder, not a disease. You can't eradicate a brain, you can't eradicate the way the brain functions. So yeah, if you want a bunch of psychobabble nonsense and pseudoscience by somebody who has no understanding about how autism works, go watch The Darkness because that's what happens. And the kid's character is supposed to do things like order the toys in a certain way, repeat sounds like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, TV. Like one scene goes TV, 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 and kind of not look into people's eyes, but it's a very, very cartoonish interpretation of somebody with autism. Like you wouldn't believe this kid has autism. You would believe this kid is trying to make fun of somebody who has autism. Like, my mom's a 
spent years as a school psychologist dealing especially with kids with you know wide ranges of developmental disorders and so she's not only raised me but helped several other kids on the spectrum out and the closest she's found to a character who kind of exhibits autistic behavior is Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory. Now you could take that as you will, but either you know, if whether or not you're a fan, I'm not really a fan because I kind of think of it as nerdy from an outsider's point of view. Nerdy from the point of view of people who have who have no interaction with actual nerds. You know, whereas another interpretation of nerds from people who are nerds writing is Daniel Pudi's character Abed from Community. He exhibits a lot more symptoms of autism and especially Asperger's syndrome than anything else. And aside from things like Rain Man in this movie from the writer called Mozart and the Whale, which is really good, and exhibits a romantic relationship between two people who have Asperger's. And if you wanted to see a more accurate interpretation of Asperger's and people on the spectrum, I will, you know, watch Rain Man because that definitely kind of exhibits the lower functioning end, but also watch Mozart and the Whale because that'll give you an idea of the higher functioning end. This movie gets like the Good Morning America Oprah Dr. Phil version of autism where it's all sensational and stuff. Oh, he does all these weird things and he's odd and he's not right and he sees things different and... It's insulting, really. Not as insulting, oddly enough, as Money Monster for me, but definitely insulting from Blumhouse and the and this and whoever the hell these writers are, because they have absolutely no understanding of how the spectrum works. And as somebody who is on the spectrum, I almost want to write a horror movie to show them what a character is like if they are on the spectrum. Because this kid is essentially like when he's dealing with the stuff, he's more like a demon child than somebody who is on the spectrum. Like, he doesn't really exhibit a lot. He exhibits the kind of stuff on the spectrum you see on daytime TV. Not who, from people who deal with the stuff at large. And daytime TV is notorious for sensationalizing everything. Like, I remember, specifically, in the mid-2000s, my mom taped an episode of Oprah when she was still on the air on network TV that dealt with a parent of an adult who had autism, who had a more lower-functioning form of autism, and she was not happy with how it turned out because it was completely brushed over, you know, all the details were completely brushed over, and it was all about how this poor mother has to deal with this sick, sick child of hers, and it has no understanding of how to help people who actually have children with autism, you know, it doesn't talk about how things like, oh, the fact that it comes from, the fact that it probably comes from genetics, and it has nothing to do with vaccines, or God knows what else people have tried to try to tie autism to and that the more we understand it the better we are able to help people who are on the spectrum uh but we're getting completely off point with the movie because aside from completely completely remake trying to remake poltergeist and making a terrible version of somebody with autism on the screen huh i guess there is nothing else because yeah there's nothing else 
the kid who do, the kid who's supposed to have autism acts like a crazy kid, and then all of a sudden at the end apparently is better. Like uh, getting rid of those stones may have cured his autism. They don't talk about it. They don't. They don't say whether or not the kid still does those weird things like he was like he used to before, or if this spiritual experience cured his autism. Uh, I don't know. The only other thing really is, well, two things. Ming-Na from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the voice of Mulan and a whole bunch of other stuff. She's a very prominent TV and smaller film. You know, she's had smaller films, but she's best known right now as Agent May on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Has a small role as essentially the conduit for the for Kevin Bacon and Rada Mitchell to find the spiritual healers who, in place of Zelda Rubenstein, are two half, two quote-unquote Spanish-slash-Native American women. Like, a grandma and her grandchild and her granddaughter are the healers, and they speak Spanish, but God, do they look like they're some kind of Native like there's some kind like there's some kind of native american tribe and okay so apparently the actress who plays the granddaughter also stars in the Bobcat Goldthwait movie God Bless America and the Hulu original series Casual and there's no information about any sort of ethnic makeup like whether she's of european descent or she's of mixed descent but there's nothing on her, but apparently she speaks Spanish and has a Spanish slash Native American grandma, and she's definitely made to look more Native. Pitch black hair, a lot of earth tones in it, probably like some form of leather clothing, and it's it's really insulting, the the spiritual healers in this movie. It's just all around insulting to watch. Because, like, Zelda Rubenstein in... Because here's the thing. When you want to do that sort of thing, it's going to be offensive no matter what because you're taking somebody's actual religion and making a mockery of it for your movie. But with Zelda Rubenstein, there was no real heritage there. She was just a psychic, you know? She wasn't... A Christian, he, you know, because they did the thing with the go- the Irish ghost hunter in the remake, which I was, you know, that's how you do it. You Instead of just a psychic, you go with the ghost hunter because that's going to be the thing. And that, I think, makes way more sense. You get somebody who handles spiritual things in a non-religious way rather than get somebody who unravels a leather pouch and has a cross where Kevin Bacon has to ask, why aren't they breaking at the cross? And the actress who plays the granddaughter has to say, this evil is much older. It wouldn't, you're, do you believe in a higher power? You might want to start, but he wouldn't do any good anyway. It's terrible, terrible, and blatantly offensive stereotypes all around. And it really is just awful now that they think about it. And yet at the same time, it didn't piss me off as much as Money Monster. So, what are you going to do? All right, after the break, 
we're going to get into Wall Street on film. This is specifically Wall Street on film. I did do some digging on finding movies about Wall Street because I don't know of a lot. But a bunch of stuff that came up was stuff like It's a Wonderful Life and The Game featuring Michael Douglas and stuff that deals with business and stocks, but not specifically Wall Street. So that kind of stuff... I want to leave off because this is specifically about Wall Street being depicted on film. And so when we want to talk about that, there is a really old 1929 movie called The Wolf of Wall Street, which is essentially the oldest movie about Wall Street that I'm able to find. And that movie has been lost to history, apparently, because that was listed as a movie that where the prints have been missing and the film is technically incomplete. And that one is essentially the stereotypical guy is crooked on Wall Street and his bad decisions eventually bankrupt those around him. So it was kind of the template for a lot of what we'll see in this sort of genre, if you will. The thing after that was listed on Wikipedia as a Wall Street movie, but only deals with Wall Street in the first half. It's this 30s movie called Corsair, where a guy is... A guy is trying to win this girl, and in doing so, joins her father on Wall Street as a stock trader, and he doesn't enjoy that, so he becomes a pirate who only robs bootleggers because that way he's stealing money from bad people. Whereas the Wall Street guy was taking money from all kinds of people like grandmas and family businesses and that sort of thing. So he became a pirate to make the kind of money to win this gold digger's heart. So apparently that's a thing that exists. A lot of stuff I'm going to find out that exists. Like this 60s movie called The Wheeler Dealers. Starring James Garner and Lee Remick. And it's about a female stockbroker for a firm that's trying to keep her job from a sexist boss who is unwilling to fire her because she's a woman. So in order to get around that gives her a job that, she, that he knows she will fail in order to fire her. It's, it's interesting. I mean... You wouldn't think the 60s would be so prescient about that, you know? They wouldn't, you wouldn't think that Hollywood would be acknowledging that sort of inherent sexism within the system openly like that on film. 
But then I don't know how popular this movie was either. So anyway, Lee Mermick is a stockbroker with a business that she has to save. And in order to do so, she gets the help of James Garner, who's this big Texas wheeler and dealer sort of big money spender. And it turns into this sort of romantic romp. And then somehow they investigate the company and all kinds of shady business dealings that go on there. And it's not very well, and it sounds like it's not very well thought out. So there's probably a reason I've never heard of it. After that is 1981's Rollover, about Jane Fonda, who plays the widow to a chemical company who tries to find out why her husband was murdered through business and gets the help of Chris Christopherson, who is a stock trader, broker, some kind of Wall Street money dealer. And this, it's apparently a political erotic thriller where the two of them hook up, and it didn't sound all that great. And looking it up, apparently Chris Christopherson was nominated for a Razzie that year. So once again, these are kinds of movies that apparently are forgotten for a reason. The first one people probably recognize is... Trading Places, the classic Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd comedy about a bum that is pulled off the streets to save and replaced with Dan Aykroyd's big-time Wall Street stock trader. And it features Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis as a hooker, and it's this weird thing where two crazy old tycoons pay a million dollars to... See these two guys trade places. It's wet, you know, it's a very farcical movie. I still haven't seen it, oddly enough. It's something I still need to see. But I've heard nothing but good things about it. After that is the 1987 classic Wall Street, featuring Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen, and Daryl Hannah. And that one is the seminal sort of corruptness in business movie for that generation. Because, I mean... The Wolf of Wall Street from 1929 mentioned that, and it's been a part of business people on film for a long time, because, I mean, that's the thing. It's a stereotype of businessmen being villains because they're very binary. They don't see emotions or feelings. They only see numbers. And so if you aren't making the money, you're of no use to them. So they're always considered the bad guy, and no, no one more so than Gordon Gekko, who has the line... Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And it's all about the bottom line. And you'll see that sort of stuff in, like, Glengarry Glenn Ross and and Wolf of Wall Street starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And anything really dealing with business has that sort of mentality of the bad ones are the ones that don't have... that have lost that sort of humanity and ability to kind of the feel for the people who are struggling and the good ones are the ones that can save those people. And that's just kind of a stereotype of Hollywood looking at Wall Street. You know, and unfortunately that isn't the reality because on Wall Street, money is king. You ain't going to change that. Now, I don't know a lot about the sequel, Wall Street, the, the Wall Street sequel, Money Never Sleeps, but like Shia LaBeouf is in it and apparently it's about... Gordon Gecko coming out of prison and trying to do a new, trying to start over again, and it's about, and it's about the sort of 
it was just around the time of the market collapse in 2008, so I didn't hear a lot of good things about it, and I didn't love Wall Street enough to be like, okay, I'll see the sequel. I was kind of, you know, iffy on it, so I never saw it. But after Wall, the original Wall Street, in 1991, Other People's Money, which stars Danny DeVito as this, you know, as this guy who essentially performs hostile takeovers of companies. He buys out the majority of stock and then sells off the assets. And he does, and he's finally really met his match in this sort of emotional struggle to do this with Gregory Peck's company in his final role on film besides the cameo in Cape Fear. And then Danny DeVito falls in love with his granddaughter or something, and it becomes, you know, it's all about the Wall Street money guy finding a heart and that sort of thing. I haven't, this is another one I haven't heard of, so I don't know if it's any good. After that is The Associate starring Whoopi Goldberg, and that one I've heard of but never saw. Like, it was one of those that I've seen in the comedy section passing through in the video store. And... That one's more about a female stockbroker trying to make it in a man's world. It's that kind of movie. And once again, I don't know the quality of it. I've heard of it at least, so it's at least recognizable. I don't know if that means it's good or not, because not a lot of people talk about it either. This one I remember from growing up, despite never seeing, Jungle to Jungle. Right around the time that George of the Jungle was made, I believe, 1997, Jungle to Jungle, starring... Tim Allen is a remake of a French film, oddly enough. That was apparently a thing in the 90s. You made remade, you remade movies like Bird, Ca- Bird Cage is a remake of a French movie, 12 Monkeys is the remake of a French movie, and Jungle to Jungle is a remake of a French movie. I get the feeling that you should probably stop remaking French movies after a certain point. I mean, the best one you've got is Bird Cage. Although 12 Monkeys is pretty decent only because it doesn't really have anything to do with the original. But Jungle to Jungle is about a big-time stock trader, both versions. And both times, the husband, in order to marry this new wife, has to go to the Amazon and get his first wife to sign the divorce papers. And then the deal that he strikes is the that he has to take his 13-year-old son, who's been raised by by an Amazonian tribe, to the city. So you've got Tim Allen in Wall Street, and specifically there's a scene uh, with the Twin Towers. So not exactly a movie people like to return to, I'm guessing. And in the French version, it's just in Paris. So you've got this kid who is pretending that he's raised by a tribe... By this native tribe to who's who dresses like he's a stereotypical Indian, a stereotypical native, stereotypical native American, stereotypical tribesman walking around in the city, and it's a fish out of water story, and that makes more sense for the French because that's something I could see from French cinema where they don't really care about that sort of minds, you know, that sort of inherent racist mindset of, ooh, look at, here's that, it's it's called the Indian in the city, is the translation, it's the Indian in this, or an Indian in the city, and the American remake isn't much better, because it's called Jungle, the number two, Jungle, like, 
it's the sequel, and we already missed the first Jungle to Jungle, and this is the sequel. Jungle, the number two jungle. All around, it sounds like a terrible idea, and it's probably one of those things that will eventually end up on the Nostalgia Critic if it hasn't already. Next up in 2000, American Psycho. Once again, something I haven't seen but know a lot about because it's become so ingrained in pop culture that that sort of yuppie mentality that it was mocking, that, that the original book was mocking in the 80s and is thoroughly mocked by Christian Bale in this movie, that sort of rich, life, rich fast-living lifestyle and that sort of... And the sort of sociopathic tendencies that people there need to have to live it. And I don't know a lot about the how it deals with Wall Street, but that's because the Wall Street stuff is more of his facade. And the actual character is more about, you know, debating murdering people and show, and having two models show each other their asses. It's something I really need to check out because it sounds like something that's right up my alley. But I have no idea how it pertains to Wall Street other than that sort of, oh, this is how he's part of that world. The same year as American Psycho, you had the Nicolas Cage movie The Family Man, which only starts out as a Wall Street movie because he's a big-time Wall Street trader or investor, and then he wakes up the next day and he married his high school girlfriend and now is a family man. And it's that sort of, what's does he prefer, the fast-living, you know, high-stakes lifestyle of a, somebody on Wall Street or the comfort of being with people that he loves? That, you know, that sort of schmaltzy stuff. I haven't seen that one. I don't know if it's any good. I think that's the one where there's this internet video by Harry Partridge featuring this sort of techno remake of Nicolas Cage and Taylor Leone arguing about... Uh, her eating his piece of chocolate cake from the fridge. And it's like, hey, where's the chocolate cake? I'll play a bit for it for you here. Hey, where's that chocolate cake? Do you mean this chocolate cake? That's my piece. You want this cake? I want it. You want this cake? I want it. You want this cake? I want it. You want, you want, you want that cake? I think this is the movie that's from, but anyway, that's probably, you know, other than that, I don't know anything else about it. And again in 2000, you had the first adaptation based on Jordan Belfort. It's not directly based on him, but the guy who would eventually inspire Wolf of Wall Street did these interviews and had these writings that inspired the 2000 movie Boiler Room, starring Giovanni Ribisi from Aliens, Vin Diesel, and Ben Affleck. And it was about... Jordan Belfort's sort of lifestyle, minus the sex and the drugs, which was kind of the whole point, uh, which was kind of what gave Wolf of Wall Street its edge. Here, it's just high-stakes, fast money from these stockbrokers trying, you know, trying to make it big on Wall Street. I don't know if it's any good, but that, you know, that's that real first interpretation of Jordan Belfort's life on film. After that, in 2002, something I'd never heard of, the unofficial sequel, because at least least according to the wiki, to the 1929 The Wolf of Wall Street is The Wolves of Wall Street. I don't know how it's a sequel because it's about the 
fast-paced, high-stakes lifestyle of werewolves on Wall Street. I kid you not, the supposed sequel to the first ever real look at Wall Street on film features werewolves. The fact that this movie exists confounds me. I'd never heard of it. I hadn't heard of the movie it's supposedly a sequel to. And yet there is a movie where these big-time stockbrokers and traders bite their new employees and turn them into werewolves. I almost want to find it just to see how in the hell that happened. How in the hell somebody allowed that to happen and how it turned out. Hey, After that, in 2003, is the Richard Gere's movie Arbitrage, which is about a hedge fund manager, which is interesting because it's the first time I've ever really heard of a hedge fund manager on film. Mostly I hear about them in the news. They're the kind of guys that crippled the global economy. It's guys like that that are screwing around with the numbers to try and better themselves off. Anyway, uh, Richard Gere plays a hedge fund manager who's trying to sell off his toxic assets before people realize he's been cooking the books. And then at the same time, I think like his wife is murdered and he has to make sure that nobody connected to him. And I have no idea if that's any good either because, once again, I'd never heard of it. Now we get into the documentary portion because there are like four or five documentaries that popped up in my search, a good chunk of which are about the actual crash. But this first one is called Risk Slash Reward, and it's about the women who trade on Wall Street and how they handle the sexism inherent in their industry. And that was in 2003, and the one after that is Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about the fall of the Enron company based out of Houston because their guys were cooking the books, and eventually got found out by the SEC and got shut down. That's a documentary I've heard a lot of good things about, and I kind of want to watch just to see what all happened. After that, in 2007, is an interesting indie movie that features the highest listed actor not being an, anybody American or English or anything. It's this British... Pakistani descent actor Riz Ahmed, who's also one of the guys involved in Four Lions and played a character in Nightcrawler, the movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal from 2014. And I remember seeing this. I don't remember loving it. I do remember seeing it as an interesting story, but it's, you know, thankfully its top billing is Riz Ahmed and it's not featuring Riz Ahmed as the title character but it features Liev Schreiber, Kiefer Sutherland, Kate Hudson, and then a lot of you know Arabic-sounding and Middle Eastern-sounding actors like Om Puri, Haluk Bilginer, Misha Shafi, Shabana Azmi, Imaduddin Shah. So there's it's a wide swath because the character played by Riz Ahmed is a Pakistani guy who breaks free from tradition and goes to the U.S., studies at Princeton and becomes a stockbroker on Wall Street. And it isn't until he once again finds a conscience by not wanting to sell off this company that translated his father's poetry that he gets fired from his job. I think he worked for Leif Schreiber, but 
he either worked for Leif Schreiber or Kiefer Sutherland, and he was fired for not wanting to sell off a company that sold, that he has personal connections to. And then after that, I believe, is when the attacks on 9-11 come into the story, and he is treated as a criminal despite having done nothing. And it's sort of that mentality of, here's a guy who is of Pakistani descent, who was treated like one of the hijackers on 9-11 after everything goes down, and the push that comes almost forcing him to turn into a religious fundamentalist and join groups like Al-Qaeda. In fact, it's based on a guy who went through this sort of thing, went to New York, worked in Wall Street, couldn't handle that sort of business-first mentality, and eventually is pushed to either hold up the American dream that he's had that helped make him who he was, or to you know, acknowledge his heritage and keep in line with that, despite the fact that one side is complete... Like, he makes a mention of how both sides are fundamentalist. The capitalist sort of Wall Street broker, Wall Street side that puts money first and people second is no good because you need to have that connection to people. Whereas the other side does the exact same thing. It's a binary way of looking at the world. And either you're with us or you're against us. And despite the fact that Wall Street is not inherently as violent as groups like Al-Qaeda and like and like what we have currently with, I like how the BBC refers to them, as so-called Islamic State. I really dig that. Um, those guys over there, it's... While Wall Street is not as violent and as dangerous as those guys, they are a problem. In a world without violence, they would still be a problem because they put people out of their homes, crush family businesses, all for their own benefit. They are terrible people. For they, you know, with I mean, if you heard when you hear the kind of jobs that they do. You inherently think, oh, this must be a terrible person. And it's not true of all of people on Wall Street. I'm sure there are people who have connections to people who work on Wall Street, and a lot of them are trying to do a good job and help people around them because the whole point is that the rising tide should help all boats float. It's just some people like to sink the other ships. Next up, Too Big to Fail, an HBO movie about the bailouts that were happening at... The movie happened in 2011, and it was probably the first one to really tackle the bailouts directly and leave it to HBO to be the one person, to be the one studio that says, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to let this go unsaid anymore. And it had, like, Paul Giamatti and a whole bunch of other well-renowned actors in it. HBO really does have a great film department, I think the worst, not the worst, but like the weirdest thing I've seen come out of them is a remake of the sci-fi schlock movie Attack of the 50-Foot Woman starring Daryl Hannah and I believe Daniel Baldwin as Nancy Archer and her husband Harry and was about postmodern feminism and it was this weird, weird take on what was essentially a schlock movie from the 50s about an alien turning a woman into a giant, and it was a way of playing around 
with miniature sets. And it wasn't even that good. I mean, they don't do a lot. The remake does a whole lot more with miniature sets and point of view sort of angles to make, to play off the size difference. But it's this weird... Like, how does HBO do stuff like what they're doing now with the woman who charged Clarence Thomas with sexually assaulting her, the pubic hair on the cocaine thing from the 90s, the story of Sarah Palin, the story of the 2000 election recounts, all kinds of, inter- like the story of the Wall, of, of Wall Street bailouts. And then in the 90s, they started with a remake of a schlocky horror movie, essentially. Like, imagine if HBO was remaking Empire of the Ants. That's the kind of quality we're talking about. Or The Amazing Colossal Man, which hasn't been remade yet. Or, like, doing a different remake of The Fly. Things of that nature. Because that's essentially what the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman is. So it's weird that that came out of HBO. Anyway, that's not important. After the HBO movie Too Big to Fail is the first documentary to come out about it, Inside Job. And that one also specifically tackles the guys who built up this housing market by having banks give out loans to people who had no feasible means of paying them back. And my basic understanding of that is, during the Clinton administration, he really wanted to push this sort of thing of more Americans owning their own homes. That sort of being the American dream. And in order to get that done, banks were enlisted to put out these major predatory loans that were given to people who don't have the means to pay them back in order for them to buy houses that they couldn't afford. And over that whole decade of time of giving out these loans, eventually all those loans were about to bankrupt all of these banks. And... That's when they came to Congress and said, all these loans we gave out can't be paid back. If we don't get these paid, our companies are going to default and we can't, and all these people are going to lose their jobs and all these, you know, the whole economy is going to fail. And so in order to prevent that, Wall Street gave them, you know, a couple trillion dollars, a couple trillion dollars in order to keep them afloat. And it's still... And that's the thing. They still haven't solved the problem and people are already making, and people already, you know, there's already ruminations of the next major drop in stock prices and in the economy because of another bubble that's about to pop because the problem wasn't solved because nobody went to jail for doing this and and business is going around as usual. Anyway, after Inside Job, the documentary, is The Company Men, which was this weird drama that came out with, like, Ben Affleck in it again as this guy who lost his job because of the market crisis and goes from being this big-time Wall Street trader to being a carpenter, I think. It was this weird movie. I didn't really get interested in it, and it was before I became a reviewer, so I never saw it. I did see, however, the movie Margin Call, which is specifically about a a firm that goes through having to handle this crisis that's happening just as the markets are about to fall. And it's real inside baseball for that one. I dug it. It got edited like Demi Moore, Paul Bettany, all kinds of great actors in it. And if you can keep up with the jargon and what's going on, 
it's crazy intense. And my dad and I watched it while we were on a road trip. This was the time when he had his RV and we were on a road trip. We rented it from the Google Play Store and we watched it and I really dug it. I liked what they were doing with it. And I would probably watch it again if I want, you know, if I, if the chance came. And so aside from stuff like the first Wall Street or Wolf of Wall Street, which we'll get into in a bit, Margin Call is probably my real favorite of handling the sort of dealings that go on on Wall Street. Next up is a documentary called Moneyocracy, which is specifically about the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court to allow for unlimited donations to political campaigns. And that has not come to bite us in the ass, has it? It is totally not a talking point anymore. Oy, I don't... It, it's something I probably should look into and actually watch the documentary. I should also check to see if that documentary is any good because, like, a lot of stuff, documentaries aren't always... aren't always exactly citing their sources. You know, there are plenty of documentaries that just completely make things up. You know, things like the stuff that Morgan Spurlock makes. You know, how Super Size Me was this big cultural, sh- caused this big cultural shift in, our, in how we view fast food, and yet none of his actual experiments were able to be duplicated by actual scientists. Because that's the thing with science, is repetition. And if your experiments can't be repeated, then they don't mean anything. It's just... The first, you know, it's just one experiment. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how eating Big Macs are terrible for you. Anyway, next up is Cosmopolis, one of my least favorite movies to come out in 2012. It is a real stinker. From David Cronenberg, one of the guys I have a lot of respect for as a filmmaker. I mean, he was he was the guy who remade The Fly. He had a lot of great sci-fi uh, in the 80s, and even what he's been doing with drama now with guys like Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises and A History of Violence, and that thing with Freud I still need to see. Freud and Jung kind of a, a kind of look into how Freud and Jung's friendship was and how they, how they thought of each other as peers in the same field. But he made this movie with Robert Pattinson, and it's essentially some Wall Street billionaire going through Manhattan as things are collapsing around him. And it sounds like it could be interesting, but it all takes place in a limo. And he's only seeing this stuff from inside the limo. And what we actually see is not all that interesting. It's boring. It's really boring. And I think that's the problem with the book, is David Cronenberg probably saw something interesting, but then didn't do anything with it. It's just Robert Pattinson being stone-faced throughout the movie as bad things happen to him, like his wife, I think, breaks up with him or something, and people are, you know, protesting him or something. It, It's really, really not good. And I think that's inherent with the novel it's based on. And I don't know what David Cronenberg saw in it, because what he eventually gave us was boring as all get out. What wasn't boring as all get out was what came out the next year from Martin Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street. One of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Not from Scorsese, because he's done so much better. But I really dug what he did with Wolf of Wall Street. That sort of... It's, it's almost Caligula-like. 
and its opulence and how it, you know, the, the drugs and the sex and all this, you know, debauchery going on that was going on, according to Jordan Belfort. And Scorsese shoots it beautifully and it's so engaging and I really love the whole, and I loved all of it. Like, it was three hours long, and I could watch it over and over again. I need to go back and watch it because it's just so crazy to think about and actually see. And it was the movie that introduced us to Margot Robbie, who eventually has come to play Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad. And she's, I mean, she, like, is great in this movie as this sort of trashy, jersey-sounding housewife to Leo DiCaprio's Jordan Belfort. And, I mean, to, for your breakout role to be you putting on this really campy accent really goes to show just, you know, what she's willing to do for a role. And I really dug her. The only thing I really didn't like her in was Focus, the thing she did with Will Smith. But I didn't think that was a great movie in the first place. I still dig her, and I like to see what she does in roles to come. Especially now that she's signed on to play Harley Quinn. I really want to see how she plays up that role, because that's a blast. That's got to be a blast to play for whoever's doing it. Next up, Michael Moore tackles Wall Street in Capitalism, a love story. Now, I did see Roger and me, his first documentary about... Roger B. Smith shutting down GM in his hometown of Flint, Michigan. But everything since then has all been about Michael Moore. And I think that's the problem is a good documentarian doesn't need to be front and center. Like Ken Burns. Ken Burns is a fantastic documentarian who can narrate all of this amazing stuff that he's talking about from the Civil War to the history of baseball to all, you know, all kinds of stuff. And he doesn't need to be front and center. I think the problem with guys like Michael Moore, Morgan Spurlock, Dinesh D'Souza, they're all about being showmen. And the and when you're talking about facts, you re, you don't need to be a showman. You have facts. I get that sometimes facts are boring, but stuff like David Attenborough. David Attenborough makes amazing nature documentaries. And, you know, guys like... Now, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, even Bill Nye, when he was just an engineer with his first ever kids show about science, people like the Mistbusters. You can do these sort of documentaries and not be a pompous asshat about it, which is my problem with Michael Moore. And yeah, he may be talking about big, he's talking about big issues like gun controlling Bowling for Columbine, the 9-11 attacks, the healthcare industry, Corruption on Wall Street. I forget what his new one is. He's doing some new one. Oh, Where to Invade Next. And it's about the military-industrial complex. But guess what? I'm not going to watch it because I think Michael Moore is a pompous asshat, and I don't need to watch him to get that information. I can watch a better documentarian who doesn't need to cram himself into the narrative, which is my problem with Morgan Spurlock and Dinesh D'Souza. And God... I just laughed out loud at Dinesh D'Souza's next one about the secret history of the Democratic Party. And guess what? It's not secret because guys like me know about it. Yes, a lot of the Democrats were Southern slave owners. 
But guess what? When Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act, those guys left the Democratic left the Democratic Party, and guess where they are now? Do you know where they are, Dinesh D'Souza? I bet you don't. Guys like that became Republicans because that was the mentality. Republicans have not been like Lincoln in over a hundred years because they turned into guys like Ronald Reagan. But he's not going to talk about that because that defeats the narrative, now doesn't it? Sorry about that asthma effect there. I got real intense because Dinesh D'Souza is another asshat who completely misses the point because he wants to talk about a narrative. And documentaries help when they've got a narrative. But guess what? You shouldn't be famous because you're the center of your documentary. Like, The Cove. I don't remember who the guy from The Cove was because The Cove was about the dolphins and Blackfish was about the orcas and SeaWorld. You don't need to know Michael Moore's thoughts on the orcas and SeaWorld because the people in front don't need to be the the people... Because guess what? The documentary filmmaker shouldn't be the center of attention. It should be the facts. Yeah. Anyway, last year we saw the big short about the actual guys who made these things called shorts. And I just heard about this from my dad, who knows more about finances than I do. In trading, if you short a company, that means that you buy off their stuff. It's essentially making a bet. And the guys in the big short made the bet that these other businesses were going to default. And by doing so... The people that they bet against, the companies or the banks or whoever, eventually had to foot the bill. Now, I said this played off as very dark humor, like Christian Bale is a sort of crazy guy walking around without any socks and shoes on, and it's directed by Jay Roach, who does a lot of comedies. So I don't know how factual it is, but it's played really weird, and that's why I never ended up seeing it. So I don't know if it's any good. It was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, so it might be good. I'll I'll probably come back to it at some point, but yeah. And then besides Money Monster, the next thing we've got is Equity, which I'm guessing is a, probably an independent film because it just started premiering at film festivals, and it's starring Breaking Bad Skyler and a gun as a female stockbroker who has to overcome some kind of scandal that's trying to remove her from her job or something. It's it's the latest thing I could find from Wall Street. But yeah, that's what we've got coming up. And other than that, I have no idea. But as long as Wall Street's going to be corrupt, I'm sure Hollywood's going to talk about it. Hopefully it's more like Martin Scorsese or Oliver Stone and less like Jodie Foster. That about does it for this week. So it's time for the plugs. The main plug is, if you are listening to me, you are probably listening to me on SoundCloud. My main homepage is SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie, or just look up Popcorn Junkie on SoundCloud, and you'll find me chomping on my popcorn, and you can listen to my entire catalog. If you aren't listening to me on SoundCloud, you're probably listening to me on iTunes. iTunes is the only other major outlet that I have my podcast on at this point in time. And if you really want to help the podcast grow, leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and I'll read it out on the podcast. 
So if you have the chance, and whether or not you listen to the podcast on iTunes, if you want to help people get to notice the podcast, you have to screw with iTunes' algorithm and leave a bunch of five-star ratings and reviews. So if you leave a five-star rating and review on the iTunes store for Popcorn Junkie, I will read it out on the podcast. Other than that, you can support the podcast through Patreon. I have a Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, and you can leave a monthly donation as sort of a tip jar to help this podcast grow. There are plenty of tiers for supporters of Popcorn Junkie on Patreon, but if you want to help me grow out, the first thing I want to do with my Patreon subscribers is start releasing a podcast called Make a Better Movie, where I take movies like Money Monster, like Batman v Superman, like the Fantastic Four remake, like Avengers Age of Ultron, movies that I did not come out loving or that I loved but weren't all that great, and take a better look at them and see if I can improve on them, and if I can make them a better movie. So if you want to help that become a podcast, go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie and start leaving a monthly donation to help this podcast grow. If you just want to follow the podcast and help me out by sharing it with your friends, go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and you can find my orange mug chomping on popcorn there and like the page and share it with your friends. I also leave first-time thoughts on a movie on the Facebook page, so if you want to hear my thoughts on new movies coming out, follow me on Facebook.com slash PopcornJunkie or on Twitter at CornJunkiePod. Facebook page goes directly to Twitter, so if you want to follow me on either site, go to Facebook.com slash PopcornJunkie or follow me on Twitter at CornJunkiePod. The only other way to interact with the podcast is through email. Just email me at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com if you want to leave me any sort of comments, feedback, criticisms of the show, questions for me. If you want to do any of that, just send send me a message to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and just because you pointed out the obvious doesn't mean you get a cookie. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie is provided by Nafio. Look up nafyo.deviantart.com for more of his art. Russian guy. Nuclear whistles. Um...